Jerry Ratcliffe here with Reducing Crime, a podcast featuring influential thinkers in the police service and leading crime and policing researchers. Dr Ian Hesketh was a British police officer for 30 years and is now the wellbeing lead at the UK's College of Policing and the key leadership figure for the National Police Wellbeing Service. We talk about officer wellness and resiliency in the face of mounting challenges. Find out more in this podcast and on Twitter at underscore reducing crime. Hi, before I get to this episode, I'd like to quickly tell you about a three-day training program I'm facilitating in September 2019. From the 24th to the 26th, I'll be running a Police Commander's Crime Reduction course in beautiful downtown Philadelphia. This course is ideally suited to mid-level police command staff, and it's the only authorized training program accompanying the book Reducing Crime, a companion for police leaders. Details can be found on the web at reducingcrime.com events. Dr Ian Hesketh served as a British police officer for 30 years, working in a number of specialist roles, including the Armed Response Unit and Mounted Branch. He was also seconded to the United Nations and worked on peacekeeping missions in Bosnia, post-war Kosovo and Serbia. He's now the wellbeing lead at the UK's College of Policing and the senior responsible owner for the National Police Wellbeing Service in the UK. I've no idea if there are any irresponsible owners. Ian also supports the National Forum for Health and Wellbeing at Manchester University's Alliance Business School and as a visiting fellow at the Open University Business School. His research interests are centred on well-being, resilience and transformation in the context of policing. And most notably, he introduced the concept of leafism, which we discuss in this episode. In 2012, his article on transformational leadership during change was voted one of the top five management articles by the Chartered Management Institute. I sat down with Ian during a short lull in the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing Conference in Cincinnati. As you will hear, leavism and the two reasons for it are becoming a significant issue in policing. Line managers are central to officer well-being, and there are leadership lessons to be learned from being slapped by a monkey. Yes, you heard that right. Do you know, I think this is probably one of the better conferences. It is, isn't it? Uh, and I'm not sure why. But I think it's probably because the, the people that come to it a lot, you know, they're, they're on the sim- similar sort of... The right wavelength. Yeah. A bit more normal. Yeah, well, you, most of them, you have a lot of either chiefs or it's overly academic. It's a nice balance here, isn't there? Yeah. Uh, which I think is the way forward, actually. The, the English one doesn't tend to somehow feel like that. No. So it's almost like forced. Too many chiefs? Probably, yeah. The tricky thing about finding the right balance is that I think chiefs have done so well under the old regime. Yeah. They did great under 30 years of the old way of doing things, and they're not going to be around long enough to really have any See, incentive to change. No, they're hanging on as well with the, the Police and Crime Commission, I think, has just sent that into orbit, really, with what is required of a chief. And now the sort of the vision that actually the PCC can bring it all to an, an end pretty quickly. Right which they didn't have under the policing authority. I think it's put a whole new landscape to it, which is uh, interesting in itself. And I've seen it, obviously. You started off doing as an apprenticeship as an electrician. Yeah. You're going to be a sparky. Yeah. Do you ever regret leaving that? No, never. I I enjoyed that electrician, but British Aerospace I worked for, which was the old BAC, just finished the Tornado contract. I was moving on to what is now the Eurofighter, but the Eurofighter wasn't certain. 
So the workforce were actually under considerable threat of either being completely all made redundant or gone on to a very restricted working week. But that was over 30 years ago. It was. I but mean, it, it cycles though. And uh, well, Eurofighters out now, Typhoon, everything went swimmingly, but it didn't then. A lot of people left. I mean, we have this worry about how long it takes innovation, but yeah, it's taking decades to build a fighter aircraft. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're just now replacing that with the American one, aren't they? So you joined the job at 20, and then you ended up going for education. That's it, later on. How many years did you have in before? Because you did a bunch of things, armed response and a range yeah. of other things. Yeah. How many years did you have in before you decided that you were going to, you know, went for your education, your MBA and stuff? Right, well, that, like most things in my life, probably came slightly accidentally to me and it was the Human Rights Act and we were doing the preliminary training for it and at the time there was uh, an edict saying actually to teach in policing you had to have a teaching degree to teach adult education so uh, Lancashire Constable which has always been forward thinking always been known for being a step ahead planned to say right okay this is going to be an enormous rollout let's get ourselves prepared and basically they threw it open so who wants to go and do a teaching degree oh there you go and that, there I went Blimey. <laughs> there you go and there I went yeah, so I went and studied part-time and, and really enjoyed it and then continued on. And then you went to study advanced leadership strategy. That's it, yeah. What's the difference between that and just leadership strategy? What's I, the advanced part? I think the advanced part is because they pay the instructional staff lots more than on the basic Oh, course. there you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's uh, the same course, but it yeah. feels more quality. So they had a guy called Ken Parry who came over from Bond. It was brilliant. Australia. James, or Bond University in Australia. Yeah, in Australia. He came over and run the court, the advanced leadership with Steve Kempster. And they run the course together, which I must say, it was absolutely fantastic. It's the first time I've ever used it, but they had this concept of using uh, videos. And you research the video and then sort of reported back what the video told you about leadership. And our video was Night at the Museum. Fuck <laughs> grief. And we studied the um, leadership capabilities of the characters in the show. And then we presented that back to see what was the leadership styles within uh, Night of the Museum 1, by the way, not even the second or the third. And I suspect the only one that's really relevant to policing would be the Keystone Cops, right? Or the monkey slapping incident. <laughs> 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 yeah, that was, it, it was really good, actually. Think I'm the, dying to know, what are the leadership lessons from, yeah, is it, it Owen Wilson's character being slapped by a monkey by in a monkey, Night of yeah. the Museum? I think the, the, the lesson was, don't get slapped by a monkey. But don't get slapped by a monkey. But he was put in a position where he had to lead, otherwise it was chaos. Okay. So his character, the porter, had to show some leadership to get everything back in order. And it wasn't his natural attributes. And I should just say at this point for anybody listening <laughs> to this, please don't Google slapping the monkey. <laughs> yeah. yeah, especially on your works computer. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it was good. It was really good. But from that, you started getting... The really getting into thinking about officer wellness. That um, came from MBA studies. We were looking at, I think it was the organisational design uh, module, and I had a, uh, a really good uh, tutor called uh, Phil Jones, and he was really interested in this, and, and wellness and well-being as we... But for organisations yeah, generally, though, yeah, right? Yeah, we, we talk about in the UK. was just coming to the fore of, uh, as a field that actually could uh, alter the productivity and performance in organisations. So this whole idea of wellness and well-being is relatively recent then? In the UK, I would say, yeah. Okay. So I think so in the States, and yeah. especially in terms of policing. Yeah, yeah. So the, Professor Kerry Cooper was at Lancaster University now where I studied that. Now I met with him and he said, well, why don't, we, why don't we do a big study in policing? And I undertook to do that and obviously went on to a PhD programme, which I must say was absolutely fantastic. Good. I really, really enjoyed it. 
You're one of the few people to actually say that about oh, no, PhD I programme. I, I think because I had two fantastic supervisors who stayed with us every step of the way. I, I did it part-time with the full backing, again, of Lancashire Constabulary, yeah. and was able to have a workplace to both test, pilot, implement, look at what's working, what's not working, how cops see different things. You know, the perceptions and attitudes of then which were different. I mean, nobody really heard of it as a concept even. So. The quality of supervision for PhD programmes, I think, is everything. Yeah, it's absolutely Absolutely. Everything. I enjoyed two extremely people who were just so supportive. And you were in the job at the same time? And the job at the same time. I had, I had everything, I must admit. And I, and I kept doing operational duties. I didn't depart from that until I got sort of two or three years into it. And then I went on the uh, corporate development department because the old constables in the UK were answering the comprehensive spending review. This is a bit radical. So the job actually saw that you had a specialised skill set that they could use in a particular role and actually used you in that role. Yeah. This is almost unheard of in modern policing. The chief constable of Lancashire now, Andy Rhodes, was then uh, an ACC, recognised sort of how useful that would be. There's so many stories here at the, uh, the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing Conference about people having skill sets in evidence-based policing. And so their departments say, OK, well, let's put you in transit or in traffic or in something completely unrelated. Yes. And going, you have this person with this skill set. Why would you do this? Yeah. So it was nice to hear that it, it can be, it you can actually be found somewhere. Yeah. Uh, but again, I think some of it is around the social skill of aligning yourself to people who will make that difference. Yeah. And making sure that you can negotiate that contract with them and who the right people are to go with. And there are people that are not interested. Yes. And really, there's no point in trying to engage when that's clearly the case. You know, you have to engage with people who are really interested in this subject area, and there are a lot of them now. There's lots of them. But for the rest of them, these evidence-based policing deplorables, we should just ignore yeah. them and well, um, move past them. Rob Brown yesterday in the keynote, he anecdotally said, you know, with evidence-based champions, people who go, I'm, I'm the evidence-based guy, you know, is everything going okay here? And uh, what, what's the evidence about that? Although he, he said that in jest, some people do that. Yeah. Whether they're doing it on purpose or not, I'm not sure. But I think that look to, to some officers, they think, oh, what do you know? Yeah. You know, don't, I have got jobs coming out of my ears. We've got all this demand on us. I've not got the capabilities to let you go off doing this study or attending this conference. We need you here on the front line. And then suddenly you have an occupation that people aren't as keen to join. Yeah. Th that's the result of this. Yeah. When you don't embrace this sort of development opportunities. By not actually looking after people, by not actually developing and becoming a real profession, That's it. it feels like it's still th where we were 30 years ago. Yeah. And I follow a lot of policing Twitter, and policing Twitter's the same. What the hell's the point of evidence-based policing? Well, not all of it has to be relevant to your particular frontline job. No, it's not. A big part of it is just how to manage the organization to be better and healthier and safer. Yeah. Well, uh, with studying sort of well-being type topics if you wish a lot of the evidence base is towards criminology of course yeah so the, the things that i'm interested in are not necessarily i mean we've just heard from david weisberg about hotspot policing and things like that i'm not overly interested in that but what i can see is the links between officers being told to go and stand in an area and how they feel about autonomy and being in charge of deciding what criminal investigations to do so in, in terms of their well-being they will feel like they're not at liberty to actually police how they feel they should do. So the challenge then is that some of them won't have a clue where to stand. Yes. But they think they know where to stand. Yeah. And what, how so are you developing a personality where you're just saying, OK, I want you to police that street today? 
yeah. with no notion of why. Or explanation as to how yeah. we came by this and what the benefits were and the goals right. were. So what you're saying is that a, a degree of organizational well-being relates to how we think about implementing things like evidence-based policing. Completely. So you see that with Body One Video, you can see it with uh, taser usage, we've heard about that this week here. So I heard yesterday from uh, a chap from the uh, railways in central London, and what he was saying is they introduced body worn video and the union said, oh no, we're spying on our people which actually do the ticketing. So they're looking after revenue, if, if you wish. Like a casino. That's it. And they're saying, oh, we're, we're body worn video. So at the beginning of his trial, he describes the unions were taking some convincing to allow this to happen. And then, of course, you have uh, instances where uh, the staff don't turn them on or they break or mm -hmm. they're facing the wrong way or they don't record key moments. Yeah. But he explained that at the end of it, Actually, the unions are saying, no, you, you need to give these everybody, you know, because actually the experiment proved that assaults on staff dropped by, I think he, he modelled 48%. So by reframing it originally, they could have got to that outcome so much more quickly. Yes. By just reframing how they sold it to the unions and the membership, I'm guessing. Yeah, I, I would think so. So back to my argument before around uh, knowing the right people to engage with and the right people to say, actually, is it a waste of time almost, uh, trying to convince this person. It's about getting the right contacts who are interested in this stuff, and there's lots of them, and going and saying, right, actually, this could make a real difference in the number of staff that are being assaulted, right. similar to hotspot policing. Now, you've developed all of this work and your thoughts into a role now as the lead for well-being for the College of Policing in the UK. Yes, I'm the senior responsible owner for the National Police Wellbeing Service for the UK. And what are the core components that you're going out and what's the message that you're spreading? It was launched at the beginning of May uh, by the policing minister in the UK. May 2019? Yeah, so up until that point we've been doing pilot studies and a, a lot of what we've heard today are looking at experiments, what works, what doesn't work, uh, what's successful, what needs tweaking. Yep. So a, a lot of things have been tested in other contexts. So does that work in policing? And a lot of good people have been working with us, especially universities throughout the UK, different police forces on different areas of it. And now we, we've have eight service offerings that we're that are rolling out over the next year or two in terms of life service. And what sort of the areas do they focus on? A lot of it is on um, line management. Really? So the role of management is, acute, is the key to officer well-being? If we look at any survey that we've done throughout policing and looking at other surveys from staff associations, uh, police forces, our own survey work, uh, university surveys, front and centre of any well-being is the line manager. What is it we're doing wrong then? In term, is it a training issue? Is it a selection issue for, for line managers? I think it's the changing dynamic of work, the impact of technology, the changing nature of crime, the changing nature of society. There's lots of things that impact on it. So it, it's not. So the job's not the same as it was when those same. line managers were officers that's and, right. you know, on the street themselves. That's right. Yeah, and and I think most people can see that that's the case. But uh, again, you know, I'm not defending people, but there's an overwhelming workload coming in now. It's certainly the case in the UK because the austerity the financial austerity that's driven a lot of people out of policing and the cuts in policing in the UK have not been matched by that same level of austerity in other countries like no. the US or Canada no. or Australia New Zealand. So it might be hard for people to understand just how difficult it's become. We're talking about a drop in the police service of more than 20% yep. in terms of numbers yep. and increased workloads for the people that remain. And I think somebody told me yesterday that most of the people on the streets now are youngsters, probationers. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, I think that's mirrored across the force. I don't have the exact figures, but a lot of experience. Th that, that seems to be the case. And don't forget, if, within the 30-year tenure, as mo most officers set off, 30 years ago there, there were huge cohorts joining. You know, yeah. two, three hundred on each cohort every couple of months. And now, of course, all those are retiring. And uh, the well, I joined 35 years ago, and there were just there were cops everywhere yeah. by comparison that's to nowadays. It, yeah. And you, and you see increasing demand and, and the accessibility of policing now. So you you could if if you were on a motorway in England and there was an accident, you'd have to stop at a junction box and, and ring it in, and only one person could use that junction box at one time. Feasibly now you have thousands of calls in for an accident, yeah, or another incident. Uh, officers are faced by uh, when they turn up at an incident, they can have ten or eleven people recording that on a mobile phone. I, I think I would have been terrified that there would be the proliferation of cameras when I was a young cop, <laughs> 19 years old on the street, wandering around. I mean, I remember one day looking at something as I'm walking along and going flat out straight into a lamppost. Mm. You know, that would have become a meme now. And, yeah. you know, I'd have been instantly uh, or infamous mm. um, for doing something incredibly stupid. I mean, d you could get away with more. And I don't mean in a nefarious yeah, sense, yeah. but there was just more latitude. But now everything is being videoed. Yeah, everything. Yeah, and you've got, I mean, even social media, nearly every day there is an incident recording on, on social media where cops are being assaulted, shot at, stabbed, etc., uh, etc. Et I mean, we've seen on at this conference uh, use of taser. You know, it's all out there. It, it's on social media immediately. We we struggle to control it. Yeah. Uh, even some of the awful terrorist attacks have been videoed live around the world. You know, on several occasions now before they've been uh, taken offline. And the stress that that causes, and um, vicarious trauma, of course, we've just not really got on top of how we, we are helping our officers in any meaningful way. And um, part of our program is to look at that post-trauma response for policing. So how do we look after our officers and staff? How does it affect personal resiliency? Because I, I understand that that's kind of a core to sustaining your own personal wellness over a long career, because you have to pace yourself over 20, 30 years. You do. Um, one of the areas that we are keen to look at, and we've done lots of research, is how do you improve an officer's personal resilience? And a lot of that is about awareness. Awareness about how you operate, how you think about things, how you deal with stresses, how you unload, how you diffuse, how you recover, how you know when your uh, ability to cope is reaching its threshold, which is really important. And knowing where that threshold is, and also we've got the additional responsibility that we're trying to impart on people that you, it's about looking after each other. Right. So even if you don't spot it yourself, or others around you who know you reasonably well, enjoying an environment where they can go up to you and say, "Hey, Jerry, you look like you're you're not coping with this very well. Is there anything we can do?" Right. And then having made that approach then the organisations have to have something in place right. for you to access. And we never had that kind of stuff no, before. I had a, I, when I worked in central London, the diplomatic protection group, you know, if you had a problem, you know, what you'd often do is sit in a car and you'd tell Jim in confidence and then Jim would tell absolutely everybody and then it would cease to be a problem at that point. Yeah. <laughs> but that informal mechanism has to be backed up by some kind of organisational support right. with the pressure that people are under. And you, you, what you have is there, so we're trying to create an environment in which it's okay to come and say, I'm not okay. Right. So that's sort of the, the vision for us. When people then come up and say, listen, I'm not okay, what have we got in place now for them to access to make them right? So if, if it's a physical injury, it's a fairly straightforward recovery path. Yes. So you break your ankle, you go and get it set or pinned or whatever, and then you have physio and then back to full health and you're up and running again. 
Psychological issues are a lot more complex. They're individual and it, they can take a lot of time to recover from. And there's a stigma associated a with stigma talking associated. about it. So, for example, firearms, uh, in most forces, if you said you were uh, struggling, depressed, the first thing would be the ticket would come off. Yeah, you take away your, your permission to, to, uh, to be issued with firearms. Yes. yes. So within some forces now in the UK, police service in Northern Ireland, you know, they're an armed force. But what concerns me about that is that I would actually sooner work alongside people who were open and upfront and me dealing too. with these issues me too. than suppressing them, yep. coming to work and not being fit for the job and standing next to me with a firearm. Yep. So if you, if you have, um, if you're on antidepressants, for example, for a condition, are you managing that condition or are you at risk with your colleagues? Yeah. and the community. You know, what lens are we looking at that through? And, and this is difficult. And this is challenging for chief officers. It really is challenging. Yeah. So are people managing the condition or are they posing a risk to the public and their colleagues? I had a student in one of my classes come and say that she really wanted to join policing, but she had a history of depression in her background and was worried that it might impact on her likelihood of joining the department. And I was thinking to myself, that seems the wrong way around. You've actually identified it, you've dealt with it, and it gives you a perspective of dealing with the public that other officers may not have, and yet that could all be seen as a bar because officers are just seeing risk and liability. Yes. Yeah. In police departments, I should say. Well, the, it's the same with um, adverse childhood experiences, S scores, as, as they're known. If you've lived a life, if you've been exposed to the, the, some things, does that leave you vulnerable or does that actually make you stronger? Does that give you more experience in dealing with others because you have more empathy, compassion, sympathy with sort of the, the deal for other people? You only have to be in policing a few months to figure out that you're not spending every day dealing with people for whom life has been absolutely awesome. Oh, no, it's not. In fact, it's almost never. That's right. Because It's a rarity and it makes a, it's a pleasant yeah, call at one point. So if that goes into the CAD, it's unlikely anybody will be dispatched. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Yeah, or I'd, like to, I'd like to call the police. Why? Because things are going really good for me <laughs> yeah. at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it, and, that, and that's the, the case, isn't it? And of course, there's the, the fact that we are dealing with lots of other agencies' work now. Is this, to some degree, the stigma associated with really addressing officer wellness and behavioural health issues? Is this driving some of this concept of leaveism that you've talked about? Yes, for sure. So, uh, leaveism is a concept that actually officers and staff have, the, or, or anybody for that matter, have the option of, if they feel unwell, going off sick. Absence, and we know from uh, Gary Johns's work primarily that people turn up to work, uh, to work while they're unwell. So the, the notion of presenteeism. When, when I was doing the studies, we noticed that actually there's a, a third phenomenon which we um, labelled leaveism, where people actually, through various reasons, when they're unwell, uh, take time off from annual leave allocations or uh, flexi time. So they're legitimately unwell and could take sick leave, but they're not taking the sick leave. Instead, yes. they're using up their personal That's it. vacation allowance. Vacation allowance. Uh, so there's two reasons. Polar, actually. Uh, one is immense loyalty to, to the organisation, where they feel somehow they're letting them down if they go off sick. Even but, though it's for good behavioural health issues. Uh, yeah, where they think loyalty. Or, and they're trying to protect a perfect sickness record. Right. which of course then is used in some promotion or development opportunities, uh, so they see it as a HR issue. And then you have people who are in fear of sanction, so in fear of redundancy, in fear of downgrading, right. uh, in fear of not having development opportunities afforded them. So they take time off instead of, of reporting. And then we have a, a couple of further elements to it which look at uh, people taking 
excessive amounts of work home with them that they just simply can't deal with in work's time. Really? Yeah, uh, and on holiday often as well. So uh, a lot of senior ranks in the police report that. So that's a problem in academia as well. People yeah. can't switch off and they can't no. take vacations. And No. I mean, uh, there is, there is a, a difference between enjoying your working life or being forced into having to take it on because you just can't get it done in, in the normal appointed hours. And they're, they're two very different things. What we introduced that aspect of leaveism for is to say to line managers, look, understand what's going on here. You know, just because it looks like people are attending work, they look reasonably well, make sure that you understand enough about the people that work for you that you understand what's going on. Doesn't that also require the organisation to have the flexibility to be able to use that for people who use excessive amounts of leave if they want to use that as a promotion criteria, but also to be able to differentiate between people who are legitimately dealing with complex issues, personal issues? Yeah. Lots of people have dependents, but what we see now is this so-called sandwich generation. People are looking after both uh, young people, you know, the sons and daughters, but also looking after el elderly relatives. And, and some people are looking after both, Right. Uh, which takes in order. the baby boomer generation are it. passing into the stage where they need a lot of help. That's it. A lot of people have got a lot on their plates in their personal life, and then they're coming into the working life, which is almost an inconvenience and having to do within policing, an extremely stressful job for a long amount of time now. And they're terrified of taking leave even when they're genuinely unwell. That's right, yeah. Mm. We've got the situation where people have got elderly parents, they've got kids in school, they're coming to work and there are fewer colleagues because of austerity, they're under huge amounts of pressure. That must be having all sorts of other implications for them at work. Definitely. One of the things that we've noticed is that unless we have a, a culture where we support each other, where there's good supervision, where there's access to support outside of the organisation, what we have is lots of fatigue, lots of tiredness, lots of underlying welfare issues. And that must have huge implications, especially around firearms officers. I mean, it's huge here in the United States where everybody carries a gun. But on top of that, people are, some departments don't have high salaries, and so people are doing second jobs as well, That's which it. may be another issue. That's it. And the, the commute times we're finding have risen. Really? Considerably. I mean, uh, you will recall, Jerry, when we joined, you had to live in the jurisdiction. Yeah. Uh, that's not so. You know, officers can be travelling two hours to work quite regularly. Most officers, I, a lot of officers I worked with lived as far out as uh, Epping Forest on the, in the east end of London because it was the only, it, yeah. it's as, as far as you could go to find a nice place yeah. to live. Yeah, and what's more, they're not, they're not using public transport, of course, they're driving. Right. So essentially they're increasing the working day by four hours. And we've had some uh, horrendous accidents uh, of officers and staff members coming to and from work including fatalities, which is awful. Has there been, though, a net health benefit by allowing officers to live where they want to live in places that they feel are safer with better schools? Isn't that a reasonable trade-off to the fact that they have longer commute times? It is, and I think if we haven't got that offering, uh, we would struggle to recruit people. Because I think, as, as a minimum, all people now would expect to have a choice in where they live, quite rightly in my, in my view. You get a mental health benefit to some degree living yes. where you want to live, but during my career I can off the top of my head think of two or three officers, actually myself included, one who had traffic accidents on the way home from a night shift yep. because of the shift work. Yep, and, and that is commonplace. Lois James here in Brain Villa from Washington State have done some amazing work with fatigue and, and driving, sleep patterns, and again sleep, our understanding of sleep 
is getting better and better and better now what what different sleep stages are how to improve sleep things around nutrition brian and luis's work is really innovative it's fantastic yeah it's fantastic i was just speaking to Lois before actually about some next steps and we've put them together with some colleagues in the uk to look at some potential joint work which again is what these conferences are all about it's about joining people together with with similar interests finding the innovative work that's right but these issues of shift work and long working hours and then long commutes these have been issues for decades we're only really getting a good grasp of it now i think a number of things are emerging here one of them is that there is no effective downtime now yeah. Um, and this is, in my own experiences... Is this while you're actually at work? Yes. It's just constant call constant, after call constant. after call. So yeah. I, I will, I, in my own experiences, so if we worked a week of uh, night shifts, okay, Friday, Saturday, Sunday will be non-stop, mm-hmm. you know, every cycle. Those times, sort of Tuesday, Wednesday, maybe Thursday, mm-hmm. th- there wouldn't be an awful lot going on. After about 2 a.m. No. it's dead. No. Yeah, even in the East End alone. And the, challenge, was, and the yeah. challenge then was staying awake. Yeah. Now, that is clearly not the case now. It is just absolutely non-stop. Whatever time of day and night, officers and staff members are responding to calls, uh, often of a really challenging nature, 24-7. There is little downtime. And one of, one of the consequences of that is the officers aren't refreshing or resting right. mid-shift. So I mean, we never used to eat that healthily anyway. No, we didn't. No, no. Uh, yeah, <laughs> of course, yeah. But, no, but our understanding of nutrition now, of how body works, how sleep cycles, of neuropsychology, is it, it's improving no end. So we know a, a, a little bit more about what's going on, going on with our bodies now. And it's up to us as leaders, really, to make sure that we impart that and, and provide best evidence. It's a challenge, evidence. isn't it? I it mean, you go to most police jurisdictions, you yeah. can't, I mean, you can't get a salad in anybody's jurisdiction no, no, at the best of times, let alone at two o'clock in the morning. No, no, I mean, you, you have 7-Elevens or uh, in the UK, it's the gas stations. Yeah, you know where you you pick up something on on the run, ping it in the microwave, or it's cold and valueless. They're not known for being the whole foods no, of the no, driving not. economy. No, it's not. So th- th- this notion of uh, preparing your nutrition for night shifts is something that we need to explore further as well. The night shift carries a thing that, of the past. It. Yeah, yeah. So what you're painting is a picture where it's the job's getting harder. Yep. The stresses and the pressures, the officer wellness is yep. challenges are increasing, not decreasing. Yeah. Well, I'm glad, guys, that you are invested in the work and doing it with us. Well, what we have, though, in positive terms for that, is that our understanding is there. We have great people working on it, producing evidence to support our uh, interventions. And we actually have now a group of people, and lots of senior leaders now, that are absolutely committed to making working life as good as it possibly can for officers and staff. It's an innovative field. It's moving quickly, and this is where it's got to go. That's it. Ian, thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Derek. That was episode 12 of Reducing Crime, recorded in Cincinnati in May of 2019. You can find more episodes like this at reducingcrime.com or the usual podcasty places. New episodes are announced on Twitter at underscore reducingcrime. Don't forget the underscore. Be safe and best of luck. Reducing Crime.